Do you like all things spooky? How about chilling stories that have you reaching for the covers? In this podcast, we're going under the covers to delve into all things from chilling haunts to your worst nightmares. I'm Morgan. And I'm Emily. And this is why we don't Don't sleep sleep alone. alone. Welcome back. Welcome back. And before we get started, I just wanted to keep everyone up to date. We do every single Wednesday on our Instagram, we post a summary of whatever that week's episode is along with links to like extra files extra you know photos all that kind of fun stuff and we also have fun on the instagram page too it's not all spooky right so you can follow us at do not sleep alone mm-hmm. and that's gonna be on instagram so just give us a like and a follow and you we know. hope to interact with you there yeah, it's super fun. Uh, how are you doing this week? I'm doing good. good. How are you doing this week? You know, I'm doing good. I'm I'm just chilling all the time. Working. Like a villain. Always. You know, just busy with work and keeping up with life and stuff like that, you know? Uh, yeah. Girl. Listen. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> listen, we're all just doing our best, as always. Oh. We're good. I'm not crying on the inside. You are. So today's story kind of hits home a little bit because just recently I traveled to Washington where this next case and story unfolds and takes place. Okay. Which is the South Park murder. This all started with Teresa Butts, who grew up in south of St. Louis, which is in Missouri, as we all know, with a pretty normal and easygoing childhood. Nothing really kind of stood out in her childhood whenever I was reading on it, and nothing crazy really happened. She was a soccer star at home. She was super athletic. Her dad, like, talks all the time about how she could beat any boy on the soccer team in a race. That's how, like, into it she was. After graduating from Bishop DuBourg High School and the University of Missouri in St. Louis and a cruise ship job, she settled in the late 1990s into a job in property management in Seattle. This is where she eventually meets her partner, Jennifer Hopper. Jennifer, or J-Hop, as Teresa would refer to her, grew up in a very different household. Her father was absent almost her whole entire life, and her mother was a pain pill addict. And later on in an interview, her mom even admits to not being a very good role model. So her mom kind of knew what it was for her childhood. But after being recognized in high school for such a gifted singer by her high school teacher, she then set out to New York from Seattle to try to live her Broadway dream. This is where she ran into Norbert Leo Butts, which we know as Teresa's brother. And he ends up introducing the two of them and kind of planting the seed of a relationship that would blossom into something incredibly beautiful. So with Broadway not really going Jennifer's way, she is not really being accepted in the Broadway world just because of body image and how important that was then, which is a load of crock. And I think we're a lot more accepting now than we were back then. Um, She ends up to return home after meeting Teresa and kind of kindle this relationship that was now more important to her. Teresa and Jennifer were pretty much perfect for each other. Everyone only had good things to say about them in all the articles that I read. And they ended up moving in together, buying a home together in the South Park neighborhood of Seattle and planning the rest of their lives together. Jennifer remembers on July 18th of 2009 going to their favorite restaurant, Loretta's, and having a long, in-depth conversation with Teresa about their long-term goals and the future of their relationship. 
After having such a beautiful dinner, they ended up going home, and whenever they went to bed that night, the window in their bathroom was unlocked and open because it was a pretty beautiful night and proceeded to fall asleep. South Park also was not a very high crime area, Washington. Yeah. So I could see why you would want to live your windows open. I mean, if it's a really gorgeous night out, like I know my mom will sleep with the windows open sometimes because she loves her neighborhood. She knows it's super safe and is like, yeah, I can sleep with the windows open and I let just, all the fresh air in. I can't live that life. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. I, I am way too paranoid. Yeah, same. I live on the third floor of an apartment building, and I am terrified of leaving my windows open any time of the day. But I also uh, just read so much about death all the time that I think that that doesn't help. Also, Reiki Piggy. Right. But I could genuinely see if you're in an area where there's a very, very, like, low crime rate or something mm -hmm. like why wouldn't you want to sleep with your windows open and i'm sure that they probably have done that a lot i mean they have this home it's probably not the first time they've slept with their windows open like that oh yeah but unfortunately it would probably be one of the last times they ever slept with their windows open like that because later that night on what is now july 19th of 2009, they were woken by something truly terrifying that would change the rest of their lives. A stranger had broken into their house through the window that they had left open, and the stranger would later be identified as Isaiah Kalebu. And what he did was he entered their home and then woke them up and held a knife to Jennifer's throat, claiming that all he wanted was sex. He even used their love for each other as leverage against one another while he was going in between both of the women. Which is absolutely just so heart-wrenching because you are so in love with this person. You don't want to do anything that could possibly hurt them. Of course. And if he's saying, if you just listen to me and you do what I tell you to do, then you guys aren't going to get hurt and it's going to be okay. But you're already hurting them. Yeah. There's, like, it's like giving, it's the illusion of a choice. Without there actually being a choice. And he continued to do this for the next 90 minutes, going back and forth between raping them. And at one point, they started resisting. And this is when it kind of all started to really go downhill. He started to carve out their flesh and stab them. And somehow, I have no idea how, Teresa Butts was able to force Kalebu off the bed and take a nearby metal nightstand pushing him away and breaking a nearby window where both women were able to jump out and attempted to get help. Unfortunately, butts collapsed in the street while Hopper ran towards a neighbor while being chased by Kalebu. The neighbor heard the altercation before Hopper had reached them, and they actually had already called 911 to report what was happening. And you can even hear Hopper's screams in the background of that 911 call. And it's so sad. It makes me want to throw up. It's so weird and heart wrenching. And Hopper even said in an interview at one point, she was like, it was so weird because I felt like an outsider listening to the 911 call and mm. hearing myself screaming in the background. She was like, it was so weird to... It's like a different perspective. Yeah. She was like, I was the one that was going through it. And then to hear it from an outsider's perspective was absolutely just awful and heart-wrenching. You know, it's like reliving it through another way. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, Hopper was actually able to get rushed to a hospital where a plastic surgeon 
started immediate surgery trying to repair the horrific wounds that she had just sustained. Hopper had multiple cuts and stab wounds all over her body, and one cut had actually severed the jugular vein in her neck. So she was, like, bleeding. Just The fact that she ran, that she was able to get out is what boggles my mind. Like, jumping from a window with all this blood, Mm -hmm. having this jugular vein in your neck sliced open and still being able to run to try to get help adrenaline no i no idea i jump from like two feet off the ground and my knees are in pain and i want (laughs) to fall on the ground and die you know what i mean yeah like i get that they have all this adrenaline running through them so Mm -hmm. it's like yeah just go 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 don't worry about the pain i still just can't fathom jumping from like i i don't know i feel like this is where the fight or flight comes into play yeah and it's easy to not do anything at all and just be kind of like I don't know, dissociate in in a situation like that until it's just over. But those situations never end up just being, oh, I'm just going to come and rape you and then I'm going to leave because I'm satisfied. It never really ends that way. So the fact that Butts had even the courage to fight back at a 22-year-old man. Right. The odds were not in her favor. And I'm, I'm so glad that she was able to muster up the courage to at least do something. And that courage is probably honestly what saved Hopper's life. Um, Unfortunately, Butts had also sustained multiple cuts and stab wounds. And ultimately there was a stab wound that went in her back and ended up piercing her heart. And she passed away from that. Thinking about it being in their own home, I feel like makes it more terrifying and unsettling for me like I feel like all the stories that we read that happen within the victim's home like your safe space really shake me up like you should feel safe in your home and I don't think Jennifer will ever get that peace again in an interview Jennifer talks about how she still has to sleep with the lights on and she still doesn't sleep alone and she doesn't think that she will ever be able to do that which Rightfully so. Of course. The trust that gets taken away from you for just sexual assault alone. And on top of that, someone breaking into your home. I don't think those wounds ever heal. I feel like once you have someone infiltrate that private space, like that's it. It's over. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. Especially like you're saying, it's those two points you just made and the fact that her partner didn't make it that too she had to go through all of that and then survive and know that her partner really probably was the main thing that helped her survive Mm -hmm. you know that's just it's so sad it's selfish for perpetrators to take someone's trust yeah and just like ruin that slice of innocence in a person i just think that's so selfish and i absolutely hate it and i get very upset Yeah. Every time I think about it. And it wasn't until five days later when they finally found Kalebu and started to unravel a history of missed signals and neglect of a system put in place to help those at risk. 
Yeah, because Kalebu kind of grew up in a really broken home, to say the least. His father was never really present. And when he was, he was abusive to his mother in front of him and also abusive to Isaiah as well. A notable mention is that he was also emotionally absent, which this was seen a lot in the social work that was done with Kalebu's family and all of the altercations in between Kalebu's parents themselves. Kalebu's mother was not really the greatest either. She was battling mental illness herself, so she kind of had a lot on her plate when it came to that. So I don't think she was also emotionally available for Isaiah as well. And I even read that whenever he was two months old, she took him to the emergency room with a cigarette burn really, really close to his eye and told the doctors it was an accident. So it's like, it's just the carelessness. Like she was, her mind was was somewhere else. Many court cases on allegations of domestic violence from Kalebu's mother towards his father got him pretty much just a slap on the wrist and put into a domestic violence treatment program, as well as a respectful parenting course by their social worker working on the case between Isaiah's parents. During these counseling sessions and these talks with the social worker, she strongly suggested for his mother to attend counseling for her mental illness, obviously. It was also a form of therapy for her because she was trapped in that domestic violence relationship that how to remove herself from those types of situations. After that was said and done, she turned her eye on to Isaiah and was like, um, you should also probably get counseling because you have been through a lot lot with your father. You've been through a lot with your mom. And he was only around 17 years old at this point, like barely 17 at this point. His family history, I just want to throw in a, a little tidbit here. His family history wasn't the greatest either with mental illness. So it's like his mom had it. His grandmother was diagnosed with schizophrenia. His just family in general, dealt a lot with mental disorders. So it was kind of pushed under rug, and I kind of hate that they didn't really push for Isaiah to get that counseling that he needed because I feel like if they had done that earlier and he had gotten a diagnosis, maybe things wouldn't have turned out the way that they did. Yeah, it's it's at such a pivotal point of, hey, you've been through all this trauma. Let's see if we can get you some help to try to work through it so you don't repeat the trauma to someone else. Which is common for people with untreated traumas. Yeah. They tend to kind of like flip the tables to put themselves in the driver's seat, which they weren't when it came to that traumatic event that happened. Right. Well, it's all about power, you Mm -hmm. know? So when you are abused, you feel powerless. And if you've only been abused in that way your entire life almost by both of your parents, you feel powerless all the time. And the one thing that you always associate with power is abuse. So then once you're old enough to kind of start to regain power, the only thing that you associate with power is abuse. Yeah. So you're just going to repeat exactly what your parents have done to you because that's all they've taught you. Exactly. Isaiah would then become more and more aggressive after, you know, he didn't end up going to counseling and he even got aggressive towards his own mother, which there was one account where he was swinging around his dog leash and hit his mother in the head with the metal end of it, which is just ridiculous. But he also threatened to take all of her grandchildren to Africa, along with a long list of death threats to his mother, which is a very 
outlandish thing to say. It is, but he was kind of known for really lashing out aggressively to people that had, and I quote, done him wrong or like betrayed him in some sort of way, which obviously was a delusion or, you know, his intrusive thoughts kind of really, really getting to him. But he even went as far as to scare his 61 year old aunt to the point that she kicked him out of her apartment and filed a restraining order on him immediately. Then, <laughs> a couple of days later, her apartment just goes up in flames. In the middle of the night while she's sleeping, she ends up being trapped in the apartment and ends up dying. He is still, to this day, a person of interest on that, on that arson case. And arson is actually a really common crime scene with many, many killers, much like Everyone knows David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Mm -hmm. And that's because it goes back to control and power. It's a way that you can control someone with fire and it gives you like this like like a burning fire inside yourself. You see it physically kind of deal. Mm -hmm. And you see it in so many childhoods of like serious murder. Yeah. And it usually it's not even documented. Like it doesn't come out until like later on that like they were also pyro heads like they just were obsessed with fire so if you see a kid obsessed with fire he might be a serial killer maybe i don't know Who or knows? they just like fire because yeah fire can be cool yeah in controlled circumstances fire works <gasps> bonfires camp fires your fire Ooh. there were many courtroom hearings for a laundry list of cl- climbs it's the climb okay i'm trying to climb through this fucking episode there were many courtroom hearings for a laundry list of crimes including attempted burglary (laughs) burglaries want a booger oh my god There were many courtroom hearings for a laundry list of crimes, including attempted burglary, an altercation with law enforcement, and many other non-felony aggressive crimes. One of these crimes started with Isaiah getting kicked out of his half-sister's house, Deborah, for sudden personality changes, is what she says. So he would later turn up on his mother's doorstep, where she would load him up in her minivan, and he directed her to a large house on Capitol Hill, which was near downtown, where a financial services company resided. At about 10.30 a.m., whenever they arrived, Isaiah would then enter the building with his dog and claim that he owned the building, which, by the way, this house was bigger than any house that Isaiah's family had ever lived in. Right. Like... It was just so outlandish and so weird. His mother was like, why are we here? It was just, it was weird. But he goes inside and he just starts firing people left and right. Like he's the owner. And then he goes and makes himself very comfortable in the conference room with his dog. Once the cops were called about the disturbance, obviously, his mother pleaded to the responding officers to take him to a menstrual to- a menstrual institution. <laughs> He needs a period. That's what he needs. (laughs) Once the cops were called about the disturbance, Isaiah's mother would then plead to the responding officers to take him to a mental institution rather than jail because of the increase of these episodes that he was having. So at this point, we would see again for the hundredth time that 
Isaiah was just struggling with his mental health. Something wasn't clicking and something wasn't right. These delusions were getting out of hand at this point. I mean, even his own mother is like, he needs help. He needs help. You had a professional saying it in the beginning, the social worker, when he was 17 years old. And now he's older and people are still saying he needs help. Please get him help. But no one is showing the initiative to do that. And even his mother admits to the officers that he's never been officially or psychiatrically diagnosed with anything. But with her family history, there had to be something there. And they also had, like you said, recommendations by psychiatric evaluations and the social worker. So it's like, we could have gotten this taken care of, but we didn't. We didn't. And we failed him in that way. So the police end up escorting him to Harborview Medical Center, where they conducted an emergency psychiatric evaluation. The problem with this evaluation is that it wasn't a very good representation of his actual mental state because he tried to present himself as sane as possible. He's like, no, I'm good. I deny saying all of that. That's not me. Don't know what you're talking about. Right. It's like, dude. We know this happened. <laughs> we literally just talked to we everyone. Just, we just went out. We just. They just told us. They, you just. You got brought here. <laughs> Obviously, something's not right. <laughs> exactly. So they ended up diagnosing him with surprise, surprise, bipolar manic disorder, which caused him to have poor impulse control, poor decision making and lack of behavioral control. This put him in a category of imminent risk. That's literally what they said in his report. Love that. Imminent risk and they held him for only 72 hours because the medical facility was at capacity so they were unable to admit new patients unless they met a very specific criteria this was due to lack of funding given to the treatment of mental illnesses in america so this is a worldwide issue we're just talking about one singular case where someone slipped through the cracks yeah, so mental health at this time was not funded properly. It was during the recession when the government cut $4.3 billion worth of funding towards mental health that was never restored. It also was not taken very seriously, which caused a lot of mental health facilities to be understaffed, underpaid, which then led to a lower quality of care for patients which then only solidified people not taking mental health seriously. Of course. Because you're not treating the patients correctly, so the patients aren't getting better because they're not treated. Because you always hear the horror stories of, right. like... Abuse and all of the bin, like you know? And it's just this cycle of, well, we would do our job correctly if we were getting paid, but we got all of our funding cut, so mm -hmm. we're not going to do our job correctly because why would we? And then on top of all of that... Being African-American made it even more difficult to receive proper treatment. And that's something that we still see to this day. Like, to this day, the African-American community consistently gets worse care, gets wrong diagnosis. Undertreated. Like, and they just brush it under the rug and just act like, oh, you know, you'll get over it. It's your situation. Right. They. It's always your situation. It's like, no, you need just as much help as everyone else. And maybe that's also why Kalebu was not pushed more for treatment as a child. Ooh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I mean, if you know the system is broken 
and no one is pushing you to go anyways, why are you going to go? Why? Like if I didn't have people in my life saying, hey, Emily, you need to go and do this. Otherwise, you're going to be, you know, headed down a wrong path. I probably would not go to get help because you don't want help. You want to be able to do Mm -hmm. things on your own, especially with someone who's been put in such abusive situations and has felt so small. You don't want to push that more into feeling even more helpless. Like I can't control my situation. I at least can control my emotions. Yeah. And then someone's like, oh, just kidding. You can't control your emotions either. It makes you feel even worse. I didn't even put two and two plus four equals together. (laughs) Yeah. It just, it creates a cycle of consistent terribleness really. And with all that being said, maybe if Isaiah had been given the chance to get better with the proper medical and psychiatric help he so desperately needed, another path could have been paid for him as well as his victims. So with his mental health going under the radar and him being able to consistently get out of crimes, he just kept committing them. Fortunately, his crime on July 19th of 2009 would be his last. Isaiah was not very smart. He left multiple fingerprints, boxers, footprints, DNA, which was found on the window seal on both of the women and the shorts that he used to wipe up himself after raping both women. Homeboy did not clean up. He just left it there and ran away as soon as the women jumped out of the window and was gone. With all the physical evidence that came from the crime scene and the vast history of the untreated mental illness in Isaiah, he was convicted he was convicted of aggravated first degree fucking murder like I'm going to do to myself right now. <sighs> With all the physical evidence from the crime scene and the vast history of untreated mental illness, Isaiah was convicted of aggravated first degree murder, attempted first degree murder, first degree rape, and first-degree burglary, all with deadly weapon enhancements, the knife. And on August 12th of 2011, he was sentenced to life in prison plus 1,176 months without the possibility of early release or parole. After his sentencing, Jennifer was given the chance to say these last words to Isaiah. I did beg you for my life, and she begged you for her life. And I tried to show you our humanity and any shred of goodness that I was hoping you could see. It didn't matter that day. I wish you no harm. I never wanted you put to death. I don't seek revenge. I don't want anything bad to happen to you in prison. Nothing. I wish you peace every last day of your life. And I feel like those words are more destructive than her probably saying how she really felt. Yeah. I mean, kill him with kindness. And at the end of the day, trying to push love out is always going to persevere. Always a good option. It, it always is. And it always gets under people's skin more because they don't understand why you are still showing them love and compassion when all they've done is completely tear you down. Mm-hmm. And it gets under their skin. Isaiah was also emotionally incompetent. So I think that the mental game that that might have played on him and those words probably echo in his chamber every single day. Oh, yeah. Just trying to figure out why. Why would someone show me compassion and not want the worst for me after I did what I did? 
And it's just so precious that Jennifer was so strong to say that to him, knowing what he did to her mm-hmm. and what he did to her partner and how he forever changed her life. And years later, she even became like a huge advocate for those suffering from sexual violence through the use of music. And she actually helped to start the country's first music therapy program. And it was named the Angel Band Project. Which is just super cool. And if you guys ever get a chance to either watch the YouTube videos, because they have a whole bunch of live performances on YouTube, um, or even read Jennifer's blog post in thestranger.com, which I will totally link that for everyone in our Instagram post. So you guys can click on that as well. And we will also be putting the link to the Angel Band Project in our bio. So you guys will be able to see that today. So please go check it out. You guys can buy shirts, cups, all sorts of fun stuff to help support such an awesome program. Like, I'm glad something good came out of this. Yeah. I just wish it didn't have to have. I just wish it didn't have to happen under these circumstances. Right. So go to therapy. Listen to some beautiful music. And don't Don't sleep sleep alone. alone.